0: All right, welcome to the uh, wit Podcast. Today's topic is immigration, and I'm Andrew Borges. This is a topic that touches everybody's lives. Everybody here is the byproduct of immigration of some results, whether you're Native American, your ancestors came here thousands of years ago, you're African, and many of your ancestors probably came here on slave ships, or more recently uh, as a result of immigration from the Caribbean and Sub-Saharan Africa, or if you're like me and you're the descendant of European immigrants... Uh, at some point or another all of our families came here and it touches each of us and today we are joined by Efren Sitle palestino He's from which country, Efren? Mexico. Mexico. Uh, what factors caused or pushed your family to come from Mexico or what drew your family from Mexico to the United States?
1: We wanted a better life from poverty.
0: What was life like in Mexico for you?
1: It was very hard. There was times where we would have to share one piece of bread for 16 people and that was a very difficult time. It's not, we had very little money and there was just not a lot to go for everybody. There would be times where we would lose our house or we'd get kicked out because we couldn't afford the rent and it was a very hard life. Finding job there was very difficult, not just for us kids, but it was for, very difficult for our parents. And uh, where in Mexico are you from? Uh, I'm from Cueclancingo, Puebla, Mexico. And what was the immigration process like for you and your family? Um, It was a very difficult journey because my parents had just recently gotten married, and my dad had gone to the United States many times and then came back. My mom, on the other hand, she always stayed in Mexico and took care of me. To get to Mexico was a very hard journey because we had to take a very difficult route. We had to go on the train of death, which is a train that many immigrants board on, whether you have to board on top of the train or inside of the train somehow, and you have to survive many miles until you get to a certain part near the border where we'll be able to, you know, jump jump over it.
0: Jump over the... The fence and all that. Oh, okay. So you came here undocumented?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And are you on DACA?
1: Uh, no, but I recently have gotten my citizenship.
0: So... How how does the current immigration debate, how do you think it's going, and what would you recommend to leaders right now?
1: As a Mexican immigrant who had to go through a lot to get to this country, and not only that, had to survive poverty here in the United States as well, I think there should be a change because, honestly, I understand that there is times where many leaders fear for the country, like, terrorist attacks and everything like that but some of us just come for a better life to try and escape something we can't be happy with and that's what me and my family decided to do we came here to the united states because we wanted a better life but for 12 long years we couldn't find that until very recently
0: now there are current proposals before congress to um and uh, chain migration, which if you have a family member in the United States, it, it makes it easier for immigrants from other countries to come here. And, of course, there's the whole DACA bill before Congress, the DREAM Act, essentially. What solutions would you like to see be put forth on that front legislatively?
1: We only come here for a better life. So we don't want to take your jobs. We, don't, we want to be able to live happy where we can raise our family, we can raise our kids the way we would want them to be raised in a, in a society where we could feel accepted. And many of us come here to fulfill our lives and fulfill our dreams of some, being somebody, not just in the United States, but back in our own countries. For me, I would like that this whole, the whole DACA and dream I wanted to continue because people have suffered and people have sacrificed many things to come to this country. And I sacrificed my entire family. And for me, I never wanted to come to this country. I've always wanted to stay. And because I was a child, I was a four-year-old who technically can't say anything to his parents because he's a child, I had to come to this country and I had to adapt, I had to change. And it was a very long journey. I was, um, the only reason I speak fluent English right now is because I taught myself and I went to various churches to try and help myself to get better at English. But after that, whenever I was at school, it was just a constant, I was constantly bullied because of my tan skin and because I couldn't speak English and it took a lot of effort and it took three years to finally be able to speak English, be able to communicate and be able to be like speak my mind it was something that truly scarred me for the first beginning years of my life in a new country and it only continued like that because I was rising up above everybody else and I was doing great in school next thing you know people were jealous and people tried putting me down because of that and it got so badly that we had to move schools because of that I've, I'm finally in an environment where I can I feel safe I feel not threatened by other people people that accept me for who I am for what I've come from my roots and everything and it's all taken a lot of sacrifice. Uh,
0: that's um, certain amazing journey. Uh, I certainly couldn't do that coming from Mexico, uh, the way that you did, and having to go through all of that. It's really quite brave, especially for a four-year-old to go through that. So, how did you come to live in New York?
1: Um, it was very very long journey. I remember when we dropped down from like the tall wall, we were stepping foot on Texas, and for me, I don't know why, but for me, and my mother. When we stepped on American ground, it felt different from our normal ground. Even though it's like just separate, separated by like a wall. I don't know. We felt separated from what we've just come from, and it was a very difficult journey for us because we we moved a lot. We moved around a lot. We and we did get separated though because um, immigration did um, spot us, and because of our fear of getting captured and getting deported back, we did get separated. Uh, my mom, my mother and father, they went along, but I was alone. I remember I was alone for four days, and this is a four-year-old, walking alone in the United States, where doesn't even know where, even where to go. I remember uh, I was walking by, and there was this old lady who saw me all alone. She asked me, um, where's my mother, where's my father, and I answered her in Spanish. I didn't know how to speak English. To th- To this day, I feel very lucky that I've met that old lady because she invited me inside she gave me some food Um, she took out her dictionary and and she started translating everything I said I told her that I was lost I was scared I didn't know where they were but I did know where we would meet up because before we actually jumped me and my family we all set up a plan where we'd meet up in a certain part of Las Vegas that's where we would meet up if we ever did get separated and so the old lady I remember she gave me a lot of bus money and she gave me a map and Luckily, I was able to know how to use the map here and there. I was able to find them after like five days. Um, We met up in Las Vegas, and we just decided, you know, we're gonna see where we settle up off to. And thankfully, we had a lot of bus money. We were able to go through all over the place until we got um, to Penn Station. I remember we got out of Penn Station. We were walking around the city, and I remember I saw a Statue of Liberty. My my dad's the one who said that statue that represents freedom and i looked at the statue for a little while and i was like i don't feel free if anything i feel more captured but i couldn't change that i looked at the statue of and i was like i hope one day i'll feel free again um... we ended up settling down here in huntington in a house where my dad had made friends with someone and they told us you know we could live in that house for a little while until my dad said, "Oh, I found an apartment um, down by Pulaski. You know, we could live there. It's not the rent's not so high there. You know, I found a job already. Um, your mother's found a job. I feel like we can settle there." And I'm like, "Sure," because they, because my brother he was just he was still a newborn, and I was kind of, I was the old one. I was four years old, so they talked to me here and there. Of course, I couldn't understand most of what they said, but we moved into the house and. That's where we started new lives for the next 10 years. Uh, my mom enrolled me into elementary school. Um, there was a church nearby, so we could always go there. There was like a supermarket near us, so we had everything at hand. It was just like a couple walk away, but it was like very difficult to come to New York because we started off with nothing. And next you know, a couple of days later we had a couple things with us, a mattress, some clothing, um, a blanket. We had We had a lot of things by the time we spent a couple of time here in Huntington and that's where we decided to settle down until who knows where the wind would take us next it took my parents ten years to get the money to I remember in 2011 my dad told me we're gonna buy our own house and my mom was really excited she couldn't believe that after ten years we were actually gonna you know stop paying rent and we're gonna buy our own house, we're gonna be able to live in peace and we did find a nice house for a decent amount of money and My dad's like, we're going to be living here. It was like an old abandoned house. It was pretty deserted. Like, there was really really nothing that looked nice about the house. And then, actually, you know, I see my dad tear the whole house down. And he started rebuilding it up from there. By 2012, it was August, August 30th, 2012, we moved into our new house. And it was like, I don't know how to explain it, like, it was like a dream come true for us because, you know, now we didn't have to share a bathroom. We didn't have to share the kitchen. We had a whole thing to ourselves. Um, I finally had my own room. Uh, you know, we bought bunk beds for me and my brother. Uh, we put up our toys um, in our own room. My parents had their own room. We had our own living room, TV, our own kitchen. It was a very big step towards what meant for us as to move on because... We still kind of lived in poverty for a little while in the United States. I think it was like five, six years that we still lived in poverty until my dad's company, he quit his job and he started his own construction business. And that kept getting money, more money in the business. So my dad said, you know, we're buying a house. We're going to buy our own car. We're going to get everything whatever we're going to need. And it's taken us this, this long. And for us, I remember the day when my dad parked the truck outside our new house. It was my mom, my dad, my brother, and I. Ten years later, we're holding hands. We're looking at this new house, and we're like, we did it. We finally made it. We finally made this American dream. And we rushed in. We had a nice dinner, and it was very emotional for us because it's taken us so long to finally be able to move on from a cruddy renting house to our very own.
0: Now, assimilation into American culture, do you feel that, you know, how does that feel for you? Because you're a Mexican, but you're also American. How do you, you know, which one are you, do you most identify strongly with?
1: Many of my friends know me and a lot of my teachers and everybody, many my, my, of my comrades know that I'm very nationalistic when it comes to my country. I have accepted the culture and I and I've brought upon myself some of the culture into me, but I will always consider myself Mexican and... Even if I have my citizenship now, and I'm able to live freely in this country, I still won't consider myself American because of the amount of struggle that I came, that went through going to this country. I get it that America is supposed to be the land of the free, but I don't feel free yet if my family are still living in fear. Sure, me and my brother, we don't live in fear. What about my parents? They still live in fear, and every day it's just, whenever we see my father come home from work, it's... Just it's 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 like a, a God it's like blessing from God seeing him come home, because we're afraid that one day he won't be able to come home. It's difficult for us because someone who's um who's had to struggle twelve years, and had to go through a lot of things to get to this country. It's just a difficult journey that I had to go through, and my family, my parents always like they always tell me that I have the opportunity now and I should always prevail from it and. You know become bigger than I thought I'd be and I'm slowly doing it and and we're all just waiting until I turn 21 so I can grant them the citizenship because right now we may be happy but we're not in a happy state where we can be happy truly free my my mother she's afraid that my grandmother's gonna pass away before she goes back and I had to live through that because I had a very strong connection with my grandmother in Mexico and when we had to move it was a very difficult thing to say goodbye and in 2014 she passed away and I could never say goodbye just recently in 2017 I was able to go to Mexico again now that I had my citizenship I was able to take a flight back and I can't tell you the amount of emotion that it took for me to stare at my grandmother's grave
2: (laughs) the amount of emotion that I can never be able to say goodbye again and it's taken a lot of sacrifice a lot of time. I remember I, I always, whenever I came back from school, I would call my grandmother, I would always say hi, and we talk for like about an hour. And after that day, I could never talk to her again. It was very hard for me and for my father to go through that painful loss. And, and we, we can't do anything about it, but we, we promised our, each other that we'd be strong. And we go and we did go through a very difficult time when she passed away. <laughs> for me, two thousand fourteen and fifteen were the worst years of my life because I because of that I struggled for depression, suicidal thoughts. It was a very difficult journey. And it was just recently that I finally was able to come out of that come out of that depression, know who I am and become stronger and more confident with myself. My dream is to be able to help others understand that we only come here. Not because we want your jobs, but we, we just want to feel free and accepted.
0: <laughs> what I, uh, I love about your story is you put a very human face on immigration. Instead of just numbers, we see a person that we can connect with. And I think that's the best part of your story. So thank you. Thank you for, for telling your story to us.
1: Thank you for listening.
0: So uh, next up, we have Ashar Farouk. He is a junior at Walt Whitman High School. And, Shar, uh, where are you from?
3: Uh, I'm from Karachi, Pakistan, uh, obviously a country in Asia.
0: What is uh, What was life like for you in, in uh, Pakistan?
3: Uh, I mean, it was, as comparatively, uh, if you look at it from now, it was obviously a little bit more worse. C- even though we had our own house and stuff, like, we never had, like, electricity on for the whole day. So when I came here and, and I saw electricity and water running all the time, it was kind of awkward, honestly, at the first. Because over there, like, there were, like, electricity costs and water costs that kind of made life more difficult because you couldn't live without basic necessities for a little bit and then you had to like ration basically a lot of things which was one of the major motivating factor.
0: And uh, what pushed or attracted your family to, to come to America from Pakistan?
3: Uh, honestly, I, when, uh, when I was nine at that time and we moved there I didn't really have to answer why we were moving but I would imagine it has to do with more ed- opportunities, maybe like an education and definitely safety because there, were, there are obviously a lot of uh, issues over there related to like violence and all of that. So we would still wanted to find like a safe haven mm-hmm. for more stability.
0: All right, and um, how how has your assimilation experience been like in America?
3: Uh, it's been quite a contrast between my two cultures. Like at home, there's the culture is completely basically different. At school, I obviously speak English. My uh, at home, everything's basically in Urdu, the language I speak and my family speak and. As a Muslim immigrant, the religion aspect is also very apparent at school. There's no like association with like my religion. Like at home, there're like f- uh, five daily prayers, which you obviously really can't do at school. There's no like going to a mosque daily. Like back in Pakistan, it was since it was like a majority Muslim country, you could hear the prayer calls, you could go to the mosque okay, uh, a lot often than you do here. Like here, I unfortunately can't really go many times because of school conflicts, after school activities, and all that. But back in my country, obviously, you go a lot more times. And then during like the month of Ramadan over there, you basically had a very flexible schedule that worked with the religion over here. You just can't really do any of that because of religion, basically, yeah. It's been quite interesting and difficult.
0: And how is being a Muslim and an immigrant in the United States, how does that uh, impact you? Have you received more discrimination or ill treatment because of the fact that you're both Muslim in a country that has some issues with religious tolerance and the fact that you're also an immigrant? Yeah,
3: the the combination of Muslim and immigrant has amplified the troubles I experienced. I've I've been called many things and been associated with many of these like terrorist acts and all that. For example, like the killer in San Bernardino had like the same last name as me. So there's very conflicting, misguiding associations that have been made like with my name and the whole religion as well.
0: What would you recommend to leaders in America? What w- are some solutions that you would like to see to immigration issues that are on the table now?
3: Okay, so, well, I obviously acknowledge that immigration can cause a problem, but the fact is that the majority of immigrants are calm and peaceful people who are just looking to basically live a better life. It's not like we're trying to kill anybody or something like that. And the ideology is flawed in like some people that are making a louder noise. It's not like all of us just want to cause harm by moving here. We're just looking for like, better opportunities and uh, a better life eventually in the end.
0: Now, uh, last January, in January 2017, President Trump put in place a travel ban for um, several nations in the Middle East. Although it didn't ban travel from Pakistan, what do you, what do you think of that travel ban?
3: Uh, I do not think it's effective at all. The countries that he has banned does not really uh, make sense because there hasn't been uh, any major terrorist attack from like, people fleeing those countries. So it's really ineffective. And it's, even though it's not calling a Muslim ban, it's obviously a Muslim ban because it bans uh, immigration from se- like six or seven ma- uh, Muslim-majority countries, which is basically against the ideals of America and even the Constitution, as explained in basically the First Amendment.
0: Have you had any issues assimilating to American culture? Like, there have probably been speed bumps along the way, but has there been any problems for you in America in that sense?
3: Yeah, the major problem that I have is honestly just adapting to American culture. Even in school, when a lot of people talk about things that may seem normal and obvious to everybody, it kind of doesn't always fall for me. Like, de- and definitely the English language and all that. It's like when I moved there, I, like the first day, I obviously did not do any English. So I went into class. My parents, they brought, like, a flip phone for me to use just to, I guess, text them to let them know I'm safe. So I went and started using it, and I somehow got in trouble, and I didn't really knew what was going on. I got called to the principal's office. I think they took my phone away and checked, I don't know, from some message or something. And they called my parents, which, honestly, I don't really know what happened that day because I couldn't understand what was going on because I had no knowledge of what was going on, how you get in trouble with the customs and, like, suicidal norms are in society which is I kind of still have problems with and the language I still obviously I speak more fluently But there's still a lot of like English classes a lot of vocab or just the societal norms that I'm not like really privy to
0: So the, the culture in America is Strange I guess yeah the say.
3: culture in America is really strange There's a lot of like <laughs> even if you watch the news or anything the TV show like I don't really watch that many American TV shows or anything like that So nothing like the, even the music and the entertainment industry very unique and unusual to me still today
0: so um how do you like reconcile being both Pakistani and American two to very different cultures in a lot of different ways
3: yeah so I still obviously cling to my uh home traditions and all that at home like I pray at home I do all the things at home but I still am American I became uh after waiting for a long time like my dad's brother they got a sponsorship from my whole family which took like 10 years to all that process to take place. Then we came here to America on, like, January fifteenth, two 2009. Then we had to wait a f- whole five years for the citizenship process to start and all that. So I became a U.S. citizen in freshman, ninth grade, like, a couple of years ago. Being both Pakistani and immigrant, it's been part of both Both aspects have been part of my life. But I guess more, like, when I'm home, it's more, obviously, back for culturally.
0: And what was the citizenship process like for you?
3: Uh, it was okay but it was very slow and very kind of restrictive as well like we had to wait a really long time for the whole process to kick in and all that my dad's brother the, he started the sponsorship process and all that and when he came on like the plane there's always double checking like due to my last name and my associations with the religion and all that so that, that takes even more time and i have to leave the country and come back
0: so your brother you mean excuse me your uncle was here first yeah So he sponsored your family to come here, essentially like chain family migration. Yeah. How does it make you feel that there are proposals in front of Congress that would end that program or at least severely curtail it? Uh,
3: I don't believe it's sensible because you're basically separating all these uh, family associations and relationships. You're just basically killing them in a country that's supposed to harbor democratic ideals and like equality and just basically family stability and like a community atmosphere.
0: Do you have any other suggestions that the government should take up?
3: I don't think they should end it. If they want to, they can make it like a little bit more modified to make it a little bit more harder. But ending it or like restricting it too much for ordinary families is not a wise, uh, wise solution.
0: Okay. Thank you, Ashar, for being here today. Now, uh, I'm privileged to be joined by senior Julio Taku. Uh, Julio, where are you from in the world?
4: I'm natively from Cameroon. It's a country in southwest Africa. It's south of Nigeria.
0: What has the immigration process been like for you? How did your family come here to the United States from Cameroon?
4: My family got here via visa lottery. My mom won it. Didn't know she won it because it was left in the post office at her job. So she then had a friend of hers tell her to check her mailbox, which she did and found the documents. And it was just a whirlwind of like I think the summer of 2008, where we just spent the whole thing trying to figure out immigration and getting our passports together, getting our thumbprints and all the medical exams and the vaccines and everything before we finally made our way over here.
0: What is uh, life like in Cameroon, for you at least?
4: Life in Cameroon was amazing. As opposed to the stereotypical stories people would like to hear and usually hear and imagine, I lived a privileged life in Cameroon. When you hear of Africa, you just think of the UNICEF commercials with the kid who has the fly on its face for like five minutes of the commercial, but that's not the life I lived. I lived in a town equivalent to like Huntington, and I lived in an area not much different from like Green Lawn or maybe like Northport. Not like the upper echelons of Northport where they're like super rich, but that equivalent but uh, in Cameroon, so I had a great life. When my parents had me, my dad, I think, was 27. My mom was 24 because they were fresh out of college, so lived in a one-bedroom apartment. It was a little suite, one bedroom, one kitchen, little living room area. From there, moved up to another house because my dad, he worked in the equivalent of, like, New York City where we were. The capital of Cameroon is Yaoundé. He worked in Douala, which would be, like, just the outskirts of the city, not Manhattan, but say like Soho or something like that. So he worked in that area and he just kept moving up, working his way up the corporate ladder. So we moved up to another house cause he met our then landlord through that job in different associations and like parties and soirees that they'd attend. And we lived at that house for a while. It was very sizable. I had, I shared a room with my sister, but it wasn't bad cause we had enough room for like our bed and everything. Parents had a room, had a big backyard, a front yard. My dad had several cars. It was only until I moved to America where I ever had to live with only one car in the driveway. I've always had like two in rotation. So we lived in that home for a little while. And once my dad got enough money and worked his way high enough, he then had enough money to sit down with architects. And my dad's an artistic guy. So he found the plot of land and came up with the exact blueprints for the home he wanted for us and he hired contractors and workers and had it built. And that's where I stayed for the next, like, I think, I want to say three to five years of my life before I finally came over to the United States and that home was immaculate. Once we had moved into that home, we had the means to have several cars. My driveway equivalent back in Cameroon was long enough where it's like, you could you could jog to the mailbox if I had one. We had P.O. boxes back in uh, Cameroon, but had a very sizable home. Had a basement to it, which was pretty much an apartment upstairs se- section. And mind you, the home is made out of cement because in Africa, contrary to what is here in America, if you have a home made of wood, you're poor. But we had all of those things. I had maids. I was waited on like almost hand and foot. My dad, if he didn't want to drive, he had a chauffeur that could drive him around. Same for my mother and my sister and my little brothers. We had a phenomenal life. So it wasn't until I came to the United States where I was faced with hardship, which is what people usually don't expect to hear when they ask an African immigrant, how was life back in Africa? But that's my story.
0: What was the visa lottery process like? Um, It's not a thing that brings in many immigrants every year. so
4: It isn't at all. <clears throat> what's it
0: like for you know one of the few people who have been touched by that
4: well when we initially found out i still to this day claim i found out because i found some paperwork in like a cabinet in our living room that said usa and i was like hey mom what is this and she was like it's it's from the us what why would this be here and i was like are we going to america and then it set off the domino effect for us to like start the immigration process so till this day even though it's not my f- responsibility I claimed that I got us to America. And I got all, they got all the paperwork together. And I was young at the time, so I didn't really understand it. I just remember getting a lot of shots, going in and out of the city to get the paperwork, sitting in the immigration office for hours on end. I think it took as long as like an SAT, like three, three, three and a half hours. And in that, in that immigration office, I f- had my first encounter, this is like an aside, with an automatic toilet. And I remember I got done using it, and it flushed for me. And I didn't expect that, so I got very scared. And it was the equivalent of like the American technology that was to be had, but in our little immigration office. So I had never seen that. That was frightening for me. So that's pretty much my experience with immigration. A lot of paperwork, shots, a lot of driving, and a scary automatic toilet.
0: <laughs> that's, uh, that's certainly very interesting. Um So, uh, the president has put forth a proposal to Congress uh, to end the visa lottery system. Uh, What would you say to, to President Trump about that idea?
4: Just why? Why? Instead of tightening up, not necessarily the restrictions or like the process, there's so much more that can be done to improve immigration without taking away the gift of being able to emigrate to another country from families. Because I have other family members after me that have gotten to this country through a visa lottery. A cousin of mine, he recently won the visa lottery and he came over here. After that, a family member of mine got a soccer scholarship and he used the visa lottery to get over here on top of the scholarship. So I've received nothing but the good end of the visa lottery. I haven't seen a lot of cases where it turns into something malicious. Of course, that's bound to happen with anything that's granted as a gift. It could then be used by the receiver, however they so please. But there are a lot more pros that I've seen that would negate from whatever negatives Trump sees in them. Because honestly, if I wasn't in this country, would I be better off? Probably, if I'm completely honest. We were making enough where if my parents would be able to pay for me to go to school completely, my mom could, if she wanted to, buy me a job, I'd be set for life. But the opportunities granted here in the us were far too great for us not to take the opportunity and that was granted to us by the visa lottery so i would say find another way but leave it untouched if anything review it uh
0: what prompted your mom to i guess apply for the visa lottery
4: they never actually told me what prompted them to apply for it i just know they did and we won but As when we came into the country, besides the obvious financial opportunities that could be had when you make it big in America and the education opportunities to be had and the better health care and just overall better quality of life that were to be had in America, those were the reasons we came here. And it was only later on that I realized, had we not come to America, my mom probably wouldn't be here. I say that because she had... um, her health started to fail her while we were back in Cameroon. And I didn't know what it was, I didn't know why it was, but later on as I got older, I was then told my mom had cervical cancer, so had we not had the healthcare granted to us here, I that's that's not even a world I like to imagine, because had we not come here, whatever methods they would've used back home would've gone terribly, they would've, operated on the wrong organ, or had they gone for the right organ, they wouldn't have the treatment that would be necessary to heal her or bring her into remission. Mind you, both my grandmothers passed away from some form of cancer, so it's already hereditary. Sadly, it made sense that she would have it. I'm just glad she's okay now. She's fully in remission, she's fine. She just goes for monthly checkups as anyone else would. But had we not come here, she might not be around. And the educational opportunities, shoot, the fact that I'm sitting in a podcast with you, Andrew, and everybody else around me, this wouldn't be happening had it not been for the visa lottery and my parents deciding to take that leap of faith and remove us from the affluent, comfortable, secure life that we already had. The security was guaranteed. My dad was only working his way up. If he wanted to, he could have been like regional manager. He would have been like the equivalent of like a CFO or something. By the time, by this time, my mom would have been the principal. I would have had my life set, but because my parents were thinking in the long term and wanted the future of their kids to be better than theirs was, they took the leap. Henceforth, I'm here.
0: Uh, the president has made several disparaging remarks back in um, <clears throat> early January about sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Haiti, and I believe El Salvador as well. Um, what would you What would you say to the president for having said
4: that? I believe there's, uh, there are a lot of African proverbs that I've been told throughout my childhood and I've heard, and I'm going to paraphrase, I'm probably butchering it if anybody knows it, but you cannot criticize your neighbor for having a dirty home when you yourself haven't swept yours. So the fact that Trump called all these countries shitholes and disparage them because they're not up to the Western standard of living or what he believes they should be living like because of faulty governments and all these things, which are, by the way, the result of hundreds of years of exploitation. Let's not forget a lot of the countries in Africa were colonized, Cameroon being one of them. The, The fallout from that is what we now have today. It wasn't a shithole to begin with, I promise that. It turned into that due to circumstance. To call these places what he did and disparage them is so wrong, just morally wrong, because America itself, it's no like penthouse. There's so many problems here that we didn't face back home. There's so many things I've run into here. I literally didn't even know what racism was when I was in Africa because I was surrounded by Africans my whole life. If there was any problems, it was tribal and it could be settled. It didn't have to turn into a tribal war. Nobody was here in like leopard skin skirts. We were not run around shirtless waving spears around. We didn't have lions in our backyards, as some people would believe. I've been asked that if I had lions just roaming around or if I had them as pets. No, that's not what we live like. Like the Africa today that people don't see because of whatever the media wants to feed to them or what the media won't look at is not what we lived in. So to call it a shithole is completely wrong and inaccurate because it's far from that.
0: So um, what was your arrival like in America? What was your initial experience here with uh, the country?
4: My arrival in America, it was not like Prince Hakeem's from coming to America. There weren't flower petals thrown in my feet. It was super cold. I didn't know what I was doing. I had way too many layers on because the airport was warmer than I anticipated. Arrived. Got off the plane, met my cousins who've been here longer than I have. We get to the states, get in the car with my cousin. So excited to see him, haven't seen him in years. Some of them I've never met, and we start driving. We're driving through the city. I'm like, nice. And then we hit a few potholes, and I'm like, in America, potholes? Like what? That's that's crazy. They don't have potholes here. And they're like homeless people, and I'm like, no, this. Oh, it's, it's just like in the movies. This is New York. This is to be expected. And then we drive out of the city, and we end up in this these suburbs called long island and i'm like this isn't the city i expect us to live in an apartment i'm pulling up to this nice little quaint home in elwood and i put my things down and i'm like is this where we're going to be saying yes stayed with my cousins lived in the basement for a few for i think a year and a half before we then moved to another a home which my dad got enough money for us to rent
0: what has it been like being uh from cameroon and obviously now an american um How do you reconcile that with yourself? You know, two different cultures in that sense.
4: I will say this now. I will say it to my child when they're born. I will say this on my deathbed. I am Cameroonian and African by birthright and American by choice. That will never change. Doesn't matter what stamp is on my visa or on my papers, whatever you want to see. I will always wave my Cameroonian flag higher and more proudly than I do my American flag. You can take that as you want it. Coming to America and becoming American, so to speak, assimilating, was a rather easy process linguistically because I watched a lot of Disney Channel. So I was able to copy like Hannah Montana's accent, so for some some reason I developed a southern twang for a little bit. Because that's how they spoke. And I just watched a lot consumed a lot of Western media. So I wasn't like completely alien to it by the time I got here. So the only thing that was really different was the interaction with the people because I not really interacted with a lot of Americans outside of the few that came over to Cameroon to teach, where we then they then boarded with us. So coming here, learning the norms of the kids. People called me Julio for a long time because my name is spelled J-U-L-I-O, which is in Spanish languages Julio, it's pronounced Julio. But my father is Julius and we came from a country where the second language is French. So we use the hard J, which is Julio. So it took me literally three years to make the full circle and moving schools to get people to call me Julio. So I have friends from Elwood that still call me Julio. Assimilating in terms of like the friends and the culture, it wasn't wildly different. Of course, everybody knew who I was when I arrived because they heard the name Julio. They saw the last name Taku. They didn't know what to expect because the first name is Spanish. The last name might be Japanese. Then they see this African kid with like a weird head and they're like, okay, okay. It's, it's that kid with the head. And that's <laughs> that's what I was known by <laughs> most everywhere I went until I like created an identity for myself where I was able to give myself the label that I wanted other people to view me as, which is julio taku still has the funny head but like a lot more going for him
0: interesting interesting um i guess that's it thank you
4: julio no problem yeah. thank you
0: uh this concludes episode two we had on uh, efrain sitle palestino we had on ashar farouk and julio taku um they're just three of the millions of millions of immigrants that are in the united states and are working hard and are trying their best and they're doing a lot of good and uh we hope you enjoyed this podcast thank you for listening